February event hosted by the Health Tech Networking Club. I'm Lindsay Williams, founder of Coreless Consulting and co-founder of MyUTI, and will be your moderator for this panel discussion. The monthly Health Tech Rapid Conference events are organized by the Health Tech Networking Club, an exclusive networking club that brings together influential members of the health tech community. If you'd like more information on the monthly Health Tech Rapid Conference events or the Health Tech Networking Club, please head to the Bene Studio website. To all our members, if you haven't already, we urge you to leave a comment in the general Slack space about our topic of the month for the chance to contribute to the Health Tech Guide. More details are available in Slack. The link to the Slack channel can be found in the Zoom chat box. Please leave any feedback or comments on the panel discussion in the general chat on Slack. Well, thank you guys so much for coming. We have a phenomenal panel today. I'm going to allow everyone to do about a two minute introduction to give you a background. And then we're gonna really dive into this topic of working with big pharma. And I know it's obviously a, a huge thing for innovative companies. Um, for a lot of different reasons. So I really look forward to, to this discussion today. I'm going to start with uh, Balint. Will you please introduce yourself, give a quick two minute intro, and then we will go to Rahul. Yeah, uh, hello everybody. My name is Balint Bena. I'm the CEO of Bena Studio, and Bena Studio is a digital product consultancy. We have a special focus on health tech, and uh, we've uh, delivered more than 100 uh, successful projects, uh, both for enterprises and for startups. And into this panel, I would like to bring this experience, mainly the startup aspects, the IT vendor aspects, and the, and the user experience aspects, uh, how to work with pharma as a health tech uh, startup or, or any health tech company. Awesome. Thank you. Rahul, will you do a quick introduction? Yeah, of course. <clears throat> um, hey, everyone. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi. I'm the founder and CEO of Clora. Uh, Clora is organizing the world's life sciences expertise and providing access to that expertise through software. Uh, we're the place to discover, build, and manage on-demand life science teams. Uh, we're backed <clears throat> by uh, VCs like Spark Capital and Felicis Ventures, and we're based in uh, downtown Boston. Uh, prior to founding Clora, I was the VP of clinical development at a number of different biotechs, uh, most recently uh, Kaleido Biosciences, which was uh, founded by Flagship Pioneering. Uh, and Avidro. <clears throat> nice to be here. Thank you. And then Metzi, can we hear from you, please? So as I introduce myself, my name is Mihai Metziratsky, or Metzi for short. Um, and I work for a company called Nime, um, which is actually based out of uh, Zurich, Switzerland. Officially, I'm actually based out of Budapest. We bought offices in Berlin and um, Austin, Texas as well. And we've got satellite people strewn about the place uh, in the line of a truly virtual company, but well, partially virtual company. Anyway, we've, we have an open source data science, data science platform um, called the Nymetalytics platform. And we've been part of, let's say, Gartner leader quadrant or up there in that quadrant or around that quadrant for about seven years now. And we're funded by an evergreen fund based out of Belgium called Invis. And my background is essentially um, I mean, I did various things in university, as it, it tends to happen, um, but I joined a company called Camaxon in 2009, which was a chemoinformatics company, so really supporting early phase drug discovery, and I've worked in account management and sales leadership roles ever since, um, almost always working with pharma companies of various size and shapes. So my view that I'm really bringing here is um, 
since I've also done some consulting and advice um, and provided advice to other startups or smaller companies is really to how start working with pharma, both in how to work with pharma as end users and also how to work with that, the IT environment and really similar to what Balin said, a bit of a vendor perspective. Over to you, Lindsay. Okay, thank you so much for that. And last but certainly not least, Joanna, will you do a quick introduction and background for the audience? Yes, hi everybody. My name is Joanna Duran. Um, I introduced myself uh, already, but I'll do it again. I, 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 for those of you who aren't with us, I am a global medical director at Johnson & Johnson. Um, I oversee um, global medical development in the oncology franchise for the company. Um, we also have uh, franchises in neurology, um, infectious diseases, um, and um, global health as well. And I also am involved with our J Labs in uh, Biotech Incubator, where we incubate um, startup companies at various different stages. Um, we also, apart from incubating companies, where we actually provide strategic guidance for them and access to all the J and J resources, we also um, do um, one-off uh, funding of various <clears throat> various different ideas at different uh, stages of development. Um, I personally um, administer a, a large grant through J Labs that funds innovation in the hematology oncology space, um, and am, and sometimes am also involved in reviewing proposals that come through um, for uh, other areas um, outside of hematology and oncology. Um, and prior to joining Johnson & Johnson about two years ago, I was with a um, smaller biotech company, a German company that was launching their US business. I was with them for about seven years, um, helping to build the scientific side of their business, helping to navigate all of the regulatory approvals, um, launches, and um, life cycle management um, of the existing therapies that they had. Thank you so much for that. Uh, in advanced preparation for this panel, I had a handful of conversations and, and really it's such a massive topic to talk about how to work with big pharma uh, or just pharma in general, right? As a, as a health tech innovator um, or a company. And really we wanted to bucket this conversation into a handful of things. So the first kind of three areas or topics that we're going to discuss is going to be really around um, understanding specifically the traditional models of engaging with pharma and kind of what goes into that. A little bit more of the modern uh, innovative ways, right, to engage with pharma. And then lastly, these kind of high level brand marketing strategic opportunities and collaborations. Uh, and after we kind of cover some of those topics, we will also dive into most importantly, some key takeaways for the innovators here on the call today around how to even get started with this, um, you know, some key tips and tricks on, on how to engage, why to engage, um, and basically giving you guys some tangible, actionable items to take away from this call today. So one of the first things that we really talked about um, was understanding kind of what that traditional model from a health tech perspective looks like, right? Uh, so Ballot, you had some really interesting comments around understanding kind of uh, from a technical perspective, right? Like different software solutions and the framework kind of working with a big pharma company in a more traditional manner. Do you mind sharing with me some of those thoughts again? Yeah, thanks for, for asking uh, this aspect. So, so what I can see from the vendor perspective and from the startups uh, perspective 
is that uh, uh, there are uh, different levels of cooperation with uh, with the pharma. Uh, the the strongest uh, kind of cooperation uh, can be uh, an IT vendor uh, position when when the partner is is uh, solving uh, uh, exact tasks, exact uh, needs, and uh, and. Uh, we can see that uh, most of these uh, uh, vendors are focusing on on one two specific tasks instead of uh, the whole picture whole uh, uh, life cycle and uh, and uh, and we can understand that uh, the nature of uh, pharma uh, companies are are uh, that uh, they they have to protect uh, many information so therefore uh, vendors mainly can focus on smaller uh, packages of tasks. So this is one aspect. Another aspect uh, is, is when uh, a startup uh, is in that position that uh, that, that uh, pharma-focused startup can cooperate with a, with a big uh, pharma company. In uh, many cases, uh, they can have an early exit uh, but but in some cases uh, the startups can't find the right uh, topic, the right uh, value proposition to to work together with the with the pharma uh, enterprise, uh, and uh, and uh, in most cases uh, <clears throat> there are no uh, long long time uh, uh, business developments. Either uh, the startup has uh, an actual important topic and they can work together uh, or or that uh, the startup can't really find the cooperation platform with the pharma uh, company it's an also quite interesting aspect and this third one is a wider uh, communication like uh, cooperation between many many uh, health tech uh, company startups uh, like uh, in the wellness sector or focusing on prevention sports nutrition uh, and what I can see is more and more uh, uh, pharma enterprises are focusing not just on the cure of different uh, diseases, but but on the communication of uh, of health itself, uh, uh, building up up a, a branding, a refreshed brand uh, which is around health and uh, and uh, to support it, uh, I can see many cooperation opportunities. For, for a diverse uh, set of uh, startups in in the whole uh, wellness and uh, and prevention area. Yeah, something you mentioned there about kind of understanding the different silos and, and how those work and, and how to engage with pharma. And Medzi, actually, you had a really great kind of real world example of this, of um, understanding really that you know, is your is your solution actually solving for something? And if it's tech based, right, from a software perspective, um, understanding the difference between your world of living in tech 24 seven versus the different life cycles of possibly research or clinician development uh, phases and kind of how that can differ from the actual end users uh, experience, right? Yeah, thanks, Lindsay. Um, I think what I was referring to is um, we were, I mean, Ben Studio, right, is all about supporting these organizations and you know, tech companies to, to deliver products. And oftentimes when we deliver products, we tend to focus on things like um, 
UX and 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 obviously when we're pitching something we focus on ROI. And what I found really peculiar that there's two peculiarities that I found working with pharma. One was that the tools that we provide to practitioners within pharma can often be something that's actually a relatively small part of their day-to-day work. They're very important, but in terms of the time that they actually spend using those tools, it's a relatively small part. And I know we're going digital, but if you're especially thinking about people in research, they do record pieces of information, but they do spend their time, I don't know, as clinicians, um, with um, as physicians, with um, patients, or if you're doing other types of more hands-on research, then you're spending time in the lab. And the actual time you're spending with technology um, is often, or with software from my perspective, right, is relatively a small part of your time. And we tend to think that, um, so one of the mistakes I've seen companies run into is you tend to pitch a product very much from the tech perspective as if it's going to change the world. And it changes the world a little bit for them. So the added benefit of, of a small improvement, which you think is huge because it reduces the life cycle of something that they've been doing, I don't know, 20%, is not actually such a large incremental addition to their to their day-to-day work. And that, and that also coincides with another uh, problem that I found is, um, especially when you're trying to pitch new solutions, that there are, there tend to be, it depends if you are one of those technologies that's trying to disrupt, but you do have to answer questions that people have been using other tools to solve. You do have to answer those initial questions or offer alternatives to them before you can actually pitch a new technology. And that's important because we tend to try to present MVPs, really cool things that's, that solve an unmet need, but we don't answer the question that actually lays behind it. And we offer a, a health-baked solution that does it, that the users won't simply won't adopt because it's missing the core functionality that they have been relying on previous technologies. Um, and that the reason that's important I, in pharma, what I found is adding new tools to an existing set of of software um, is just extremely hard because there's a lot, there's numerous reasons we can go into later on why that's difficult. Um, I think those are good points. And, and Rahul, you had some really great comments, you know, when we spoke about understanding kind of the complexity and, and how long it can take to drive adoption. And actually, if big pharma is really the right way to go. Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> I think selling into or partnering with pharma uh, often can be a, a multi-year endeavor and certainly has its its upsides. Uh, the challenge for early stage startups is that you know, time is the enemy and uh, we don't have uh, the luxury of spending a year just trying to get in with a customer or two, even though there might be outsized returns on the, on the other end of that. And so, you know, I just encourage folks to uh, think very clearly about what you're trying to validate with your MVP and who the right user is to validate that so that you can get answers uh, as quickly as possible, uh, as Medzi was saying. Um, <clears throat> I think when you are actually selling into, into pharma, important to really have a clear understanding of what the, and, and do your homework around what are the potential challenges that a big pharma company may face over the next five to 10 years, because that's really the time horizon uh, that matters to them and craft your value proposition around those uh, challenges with each potential partner that you're looking to, to work with. And you know, to, to the point that Lindsay brought up, you know, encourage folks to just look at early stage high growth biotechs where sales cycles or partnership cycles may be uh, much shorter and happy to go into that uh, later too. 
Thank you. And Joanna, from, from a big pharma perspective, is there any insight you can provide in terms of, you know, maybe uh, what are those, those clear gaps or opportunities for companies to come in and then maybe level set our expectations? Is it a multi-year process, you know, potentially for these partnerships with, with younger innovative companies? Yeah, we, we partner a lot. Um, with innovators in various different ways. And I I'll guess I'll cover the more traditional ways now because I think you're gonna talk about like some modern ways of partnering later. So I'll save that. Um, but uh, as has been alluded to already, you know, working at uh, help, anything that helps facilitate the way that we do clinical development is very, very useful. Any type of interfaces, um, technologies that help us to interface better with clinicians um, technologies that help us to execute clinical trials better, um, technologies that help us to analyze large data sets better are, are very, very useful for our clinical development. Um, I also think that um, there's a lot of opportunity for people who are doing, um, you know, who are developing actual, you know, um, uh, for example, like testing, if you're working, if, you, if you're like a, if you're doing lab, um, work in developing development in that area. Um, we are definitely always looking to integrate sort of like new, what we call sub-studies into our larger clinical trials where we can validate or actually further explore the use of sort of early stage laboratory um, technologies if you're working in that, in that space. Um, that is also very useful to us. Um, and I think that also um, uh, technologies that are helping to better do remote patient monitoring or assess patient reported outcomes are very, very useful because we have a commitment to integrate those types of measures into all of our uh, large clinical studies. And we're always exploring new ways in which we can do that, especially using wireless technology nowadays and various different forms of telemedicine. Um, so if you're working in that um, tech space, there's a lot of utility for your technologies in our clinical studies as well. That's awesome. Thank you for that. Um, it kind of reminds me when you're touching on, you know, big data and, and ways to analyze large data sets. Uh, in a conversation Medzi and I had, uh, he quoted kind of a cartoon that they had of, um, do you mind sharing Medzi what that was? It was just too cute. So we're the, there's a little background story here. So we're a data science company, but we like to be the silver word voice of data science. So when we hear the word AI, um, our eyes, light up and we put on a questioning smile because it's we feel it's heavily overhyped and one of the big hypes last year i guess maybe the year before was deep learning and whereas it has a lot of use cases um those are kind of hard to find and we used to have a, a picture of the famous scene from uh, uh pulp fiction um where samuel jackson asks one of the guys to say what again and we had i dare you to say deep learning one more time and i guess it's just <laughs> it's just a, a little bit about how you can actually you have to pay attention to the hypes and they're really easy to write especially for us this whole ai hype we we didn't we've never put ai into the 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 um the title of our conferences but if we put it we'd probably get a lot more attendees but we'd get the wrong attendees in mm. and that's a little bit about focusing on the right part of hypes um, that I find important in, if we're looking at maybe the more modern approaches. Yeah, that's really interesting that you bring that up because 
So we are very, very interested in supporting the development of AI, but I agree with you. We are finding that there's, it's so hyped that anyone and everybody says that they're doing development in AI, it seems these days. And it's really hard for us to kind of get our, wrap our heads around the space and really understand what is validated, what can actually be useful. It's like sifting through a haystack to find like the one you know, needle that would actually be clinically useful. So I, I agree with you, it draws a big, big crowd. And especially when you say you have funding for AI, you get like everybody just swarming, you know, and it's really hard to know, um, you know, and especially because we don't have internally the expertise in AI. So we're trying to like vet which companies to support, you know, and having to bring in other experts to help us review proposals because it's hard for us to know like what is, what actually, make, you know, we're not coders and we're not, um, you know, we're medical experts. We're not computer people, computer science people. So it's like very hard for us to understand the space, but we also recognize that this is the future of medicine and we love to be in the forefront of things. So we are definitely diving in um, head first and, and putting a lot of money behind it. Yeah, maybe. Oh, sorry, over to you, Balint. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Uh, so maybe there are many challenges to solve before uh, uh, V or or uh, a lot of companies are focusing on AI solutions because usually uh, uh, the fundamentals are uh, uh, have to be uh, uh, stable uh, before we 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 analyze it, before we automate it, before we. We, we put on top of that uh, different advanced solutions. So, so even if the direction is, is, uh, is having sometimes in the future more and more artificial intelligence solutions, uh, now maybe we are facing with more practical challenges like, uh, like solving the, the, the data accessibility as uh, um, most of the scientists are working in silos and uh, they are specialists in, in different fields. And, uh, and between these silos uh, nowadays, the interoperability is, is not that seamless, uh, which mm -hmm. could be. So, uh, so maybe, for example, working on this level first uh, could be a great foundation for, for later more advanced so solutions. I think those are really great points. Uh, Medzi, were you gonna chime in there for a second? Um, I just wanted to mention that AI front. What's, what's strange for me is that people run with the flag of AI instead of focusing on, I guess, the actual problems that they're trying to solve, which is the story that you really want to get across. AI is a technology to solve things. It's not the actual solution. So, and yes, of course, I might use, but, you know, for, for all parts and purposes, if you had hamsters within a box that were providing the solution, um, to some problem, it, I mean, it does matter, but at the end of the day, it's, I think that's the, that's the difficult part, that there's too much focus on sometimes the technology and, and sometimes a little bit less focus on the actual problem. And, and then, then you do get lost because everybody uses the same type of technology or say they do. Yeah, that's absolutely true. One of the things we've started doing is being very, very targeted in the way we put out requests for proposals. So like, for example, I'm trying to fund AI um, and see if there's any utility in utilizing artificial intelligence to actually interpret echocardiograms and heart ultrasounds 
to help detect very small nuances that the clinician cannot detect, which would be indicative of early stage, early stages of organ deterioration in AL amyloidosis. So it's a very specific, um, very, very specific target. And so we put, you know, we're putting out a request for proposals that says, hey, if you understand, if you know AI and you're in um, the AI tech space and you can understand the data that's available and how AI can help to interpret it, because I think also the amount of data that you have to work with it varies significantly um, depending on which disease you're targeting and which specific aspect of the disease or treatment process you're targeting. So we have a very specific target. And if there's people who have the AI capabilities to help address the problem, then that's what we're interested in. So we've gotten very, very, we have another proposal out right now actually um, for Chinese innovators because it's an opportunity to incubate out of our Shanghai office um, where we're looking specifically at atrial fibrillation and the use of AI and, in helping to address the um, China's uh, 2030 Ministry of Health mandates. So again, very specific target, um, very specific disease state, um, you know, and really trying to get pit, you know pitches from innovators who could actually solve the problem at hand. Those are really great specific examples. Thank you so much for sharing those, Joanna. Uh, Rahul, I know when we spoke as well, you know, you talked about working with innovative companies with Runway and, um, you know, outside of kind of the confines of bigger pharma, looking for these specific solutions. One thing that you mentioned um, was really like the concept of this whale hunting. And I think it flows into this conversation of, um, you know, this big broad band of AI and technology and what we're talking about. And, and on the other flip side of that, from a health tech innovation perspective, this kind of big broad band of big pharma and what that means, right? But in a more modern context, you know, how do you see companies being able to find those niches and, and, and respond to these requests, right? In a way that's innovative and yet realistic for themselves. Yeah, so <clears throat> I think um, we're in many ways we're in the in the golden age of of biotech, uh, given the amount of capital that's pouring in, how many companies went public in in 2020, and I think it's an exciting opportunity for uh, startups to identify those companies that are most innovative and are willing to take big bets because um, you know that in the area that they're working in, there are particular challenges. Maybe it's around patient reported outcomes. Maybe it's around um, uh, predictability. Maybe they don't have the right patient scales, et cetera. So it's a point that, uh, that Joanna was just bringing up. It is really important to aim your solution to a very, very specific problem in the beginning. Uh, and, and then use that effectively as a wedge to then gain access to a much larger market but start very specifically rather than trying to try rather than trying to boil the ocean uh, right from the get-go. Um, <clears throat> we've had some great relationships with with early stage biotechs where uh, they know that uh, in order to grow at the speed and scale uh, that early stage biotechs need to grow at, they need to take some uh, some big swings and are willing to um, to experiment with. Um, interesting technologies that uh, perhaps big pharma uh, doesn't a have the need for, or they have humans or resources that they can throw at the problem that biotech doesn't have the the luxury to to do just yet. Uh, so finding that internal champion that 
uh, has the pain point and you figure out, and then it allows you to also get to product market fit far, far more quickly because you're focusing on a small subset of the industry, you're nailing that and then you're expanding from there. I think that's a really great point, understanding that disruptive innovation and the role of that. And, you know, something that everybody here has mentioned in terms of uh, technology that they're either seeking or, or gaps in pharma of any size really is this, you know, engagement with patients in a different way. And that kind of brings us to this higher level uh, brand marketing kind of collaborative partnerships where uh, pharma either doesn't have the ability for a brand reason or um, or just wants to branch out and create a different level of engagement with patients through patient-reported outcomes, patient recruitment, that type of thing. Um, but really creating almost these little, you know, very light relationships and collaborations with companies. And it's an interesting trend that I'm seeing in terms of educational, uh, you know, patient engagement and, and that type of stuff. But I think it really speaks to understanding the value add and the audience um, and that maybe it's it's an ad that you can bring that's outside of pharma's core business model right um, and I think you know this disruptive innovation from a vendor perspective you know really begs the question and I'll kind of go through our, our panelists here and get their thoughts on this um, but what do you see in terms of this trend and and why do you feel like that is a, a big need in all levels of pharma and biotech at this point? Valent, will we start with you, please? Yeah, so so uh, what I can see is this this trend uh, uh, focusing on the on the rebranding of uh, pharma and uh, and putting the health uh, in the center is uh, is start, starting from the people uh, because uh, what i can see is is nowadays uh, we are in a trend where where uh, prevention and, uh, and 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 proactive uh, health management is is more and more important uh, compared to the times uh, decades ago and uh, and uh, we can see the the reaction uh, from the small and big uh, corporates uh, on this trend. And on one hand, we can see that a lot of small companies are are creating uh, great uh, solutions for this uh, prevention, uh, health, uh, nutrition, wellness uh, uh, services. But on the other hand, we also can see that. Uh, that ph pharma companies also would like to to involve all these these uh, these values and to and to enrich their uh, uh, message uh, with with the health uh, term. So so I can see a lot of uh, cooperation opportunities for uh, smaller companies, startups who are not originally uh, focusing on pharma relations, but can find a good uh, synergy. With the with the pharma companies because for the pharma companies uh, they don't necessarily need develop this uh, branding awareness in house. Uh, it's better to 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 have this result as part of a, a bigger uh, uh, collaboration. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Actually, we have a great uh, question here in the chat. I'm going to quickly read. It says, how is pharma approaching partnering with digital therapeutics and population health platforms as a partner or adjuvant for their therapies? 
Joanna, do you want to take a stab at that for us? Yeah, I would love to answer this question. So um, we do a population, we do population PK analyses as part of all of our large um, pivotal trials. So um, we def if you have technologies in this space, um, you know, we would definitely be interested in innovating and the way in which we're doing these analyses. Um, it's definitely a big part of every major um, development that we have. It, um, so it, it, is, is there like a specific, does that, I hope that answers the question. I don't know if there's a specific aspect of um, population sciences that you're, we do a lot of POP-PK um, analyses with all of our new therapeutics. So when you're developing a drug um, and you're looking at pharmacokinetics, um, we do a lot of Bayesian modeling. We look to see how um, the uh, PK analyses within a particular study measures up against real world um, evidence and population pharmacokinetic modeling. So those are just kind of some examples, but if somebody has like a specific um, aspect of this that they want me to address, I'm happy to dive further. I think that's great. Um, I want to go back and visit the panelists to, to kind of round out the, the rest of the previous question. Um, regarding kind of the trends of these not necessarily clinical specific, um, you know, technologies, but maybe adjacent technologies in this regard, right, of, of digital therapeutics, population health platforms, other kind of add-ons for partnerships and the trends that, um, that those kind of branding and marketing relationships with pharma are bringing. And Rahul, I think you had some really great comments on this when we spoke around, you know, this actually being a really great opportunity to find a market leader and kind of piggyback off of that distribution for, for possibly a really young startup to kind of make a way and a path forward um, through kind of the noise of the market. Yeah, thanks, Lindsay. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I, I think oftentimes partnerships at the for early stage biotechs can be a bit of a distraction, particularly when a small company is partnering with another small company. But if you can forge a relationship with a, a market leader that already has some of the plumbing in place that you're looking for that ties to big pharma. And you can, uh, you know, I think, I think everyone's looking to, to innovate. And if it adds an additional revenue stream or folks with that plumbing in place are willing to take um, uh, a bet on a particular technology and start to sell that to some of their partners, I think that could be really interesting. It could act as a, as a way for you not to have to wait a year, year and a half. I think another thing that, that might be interesting for folks would be that, you know, maybe you can't get into big pharma, but uh, you can uh, engage with subject matter experts or KOLs that oftentimes work and partner with big pharma. And if somebody is running, let's say an investigator initiated study, and uh, the, the risk of trying uh, some of these new technologies is much lower in, uh, in an investigator-initiated study. But if, uh, if it does pay off, then that KOL can become your champion and serve as a conduit to big pharma. I think that could also serve as, a, as an interesting avenue for, for early stage startups to, to gain some exposure uh, in, a, in, in, a, in a much quicker way than, than usual. Can I add to that? Lindsay, is that okay? Absolutely. Okay, yeah, um, I absolutely agree. So we fund um, 
many, many investigator initiated trials. The, the particular franchise that I'm managing right now, we have over 200 investigator initiated trials that we're funding. So I, I think that's a really great idea to kind of get in there where there's much lower risk, you know, as far as a integrating a new technology into a company sponsored like phase two or phase three trial that's part of a regulatory pathway, we're going to be much more selective about what we try to bring into that because if it mucks up our data or it like tampers with anything in a way that's not totally validated and going to be endorsed by the FDA, that would be extremely risky for us and, and the very large investment of hundreds of millions of dollars that we have poured into the, you know, a, a regulatory trial. So the investigator initiated studies are a great way and kind of um, trying to tap into those investigators at, at large academic medical centers is a really good idea. The other thing that I wanted to mention is that we also do a lot of population studies and you utilize a lot of, a lot of technology and data analysis in, that, in, in population data when it comes to preparing dossiers for what we call um, our market access team. So there, every large pharma company has a division we, we call it market access. There's various different names for it, um, which is the division, which is the team in the company that actually works to prepare a dossier to present to payer organizations and government organizations that actually provide reimbursement. So obviously, we, when we're we have a new technology, we want to make sure that patients have access to it. So we have these, you know, very in-depth negotiations um, with payer groups and in and globally, some, you know, in the U.S., this happens a lot of times with private payers, but we also negotiate with Medicare and Medicaid. And for example, in countries like Canada or in various European countries, we're negotiating directly with the government for reimbursement. Um, and so like the national health system, for example, in the UK. So um, when we're preparing those um, sort of, it's like a very large, you know, thousands of pages document, we oftentimes will do a lot of real world data analysis. We'll do a lot of population analysis, a lot of biostatistics bio analysis to make a case, to kind of build a case for why there's a need, why this disease is devastating, why it's costing people a lot. So if you do like financial modeling that can apply, for example, and you have technology that helps to analyze data to build a financial case for why, you know, earlier treatment will actually save payers money in the long run, that sort of thing. That is another aspect of, of kind of utilizing date tech, tech to analyze data that can be very useful to um, a large pharma company. And if you have contacts in the market access division, or if you can reach out to those individuals, um, that's a really good place to, to, to go. If, you, if you're trying to get your technology, if you have a truly validated technology that you think is rigorous enough that could be integrated into a regulatory study, your target would be um, the clinical development lead who's developing a particular trial um, that you're aware of that's part of their portfolio of development, the company's portfolio of development, or um, the study responsible physician, or what we call the GMAL, which is the global medical affairs lead or the global medical director, um, would be the people who could actually kind of help advocate internally to consider your technology and integrating it into a, a company-sponsored study. That is phenomenal. Thank you for sharing that. It actually reminds me of something, Rahul, you said uh, on the phone, which is, you know, as part of these considerations, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of what these gaps are and different ways to work with pharma, but then it's like, I, I feel like a lot of people go, well, I don't know where to start. And Joanna, that's a really great um, kind of tip there of who to target. Uh, but something else that you said and kind of, reiterated a couple times was 
the why, right? And that was something Rahul, you brought up of, do you know your why as a company? And, and where does that fit with pharma's why, right? Um, do you mind kind of sharing your thoughts on that? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think um, to a point that I brought up a little bit earlier, which was that understanding where, what, what are the challenges that pharma is facing? And you know, one of them being patient engagement as an, as an example. Um, and, and there's plenty of examples now of companies that uh, initially started focusing on patient engagement and building apps to, to gather data from patients and really understand um, uh, what that why looked like. I think you know, really encourage companies early on to get data as quickly as possible through kind of any means necessary, obviously following uh, uh, the right ethics and, and, um, and running things through the IRB, but focusing on getting data as quickly as possible because it gives you a disproportionate amount of leverage when you then start to have some partnership discussions where you can actually show data and it builds uh, credibility uh, when you're going to these companies with, with data and they're able to then see where the puck might be headed by leveraging what you have built uh, rather than just going there uh, you know, in the absence of any data and much more pie in the sky, it's a much bigger bet for any partner to take on you. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. Medzi, you brought something up, which was don't underestimate the value of the story to tell and, and basically finding that kind of overarching story that connects your product solution to their problem, right? Yeah, that, so that, that's me putting my account manager or sales executive hat on, right? That what I tend to feel is, is we pitch technology and we put solutions. And it goes back a little bit to what I said about the AI part, right? That when you are going to get in front of those people, to which I'll revert to how you can get to them in just a moment, um, it's there's no amount of questions that you can ask that, that is too much, right? To get to real, really, what are the pain points that they have? Because we tend to, I mean, I, I struggle with this in my team, and I struggle with myself sometimes, that I try to answer the wrong questions. And I might have come up with a technology, and when I try to pitch it, I'm, I'm, I'm or a solution, and I'm trying to pitch that solution without going one step beyond to really find the pain points with a story, right? This is an end-to-end -end story, and you need to be able to fit in what you're offering into the almost entire work life of the person you're actually going to talk to. Your solution is going to be one part of that. And it needs to fit into their story and they need to be able to tell you how that fits in. And we tend to stop one step before that. And then your story just floats in, in the air. And then somebody else might come along who does understand the entire um, process into which your technology or solution fits in. And they are simply more convincing because they answered the need better because they've identified the need better. Um, before handing it back to you, Lindsay, one quick comment back to the disruptive innovation and how to get in, because I saw questions around that. And besides these specific CMOs, I found that almost all pharma companies have started up their internal ideation platforms. There's ideation, there's disruptive innovation leads. I know a guy in GSK who reported directly to the CEO. He's, his role was for five years to do disruptive innovation. He was interested in everything anybody could have brought to him. His goal was to fail 50% of the time, at least. I think his, his KPI was that the projects that he started had to fail 50% of the time, which means he had a lot of room to experiment to bring in new technologies. And he worked with startups all around the world. 
And there's similar people I know in Birmingham, Ingelheim, who are doing the same. So getting to those people, and they have overarching responsibilities, not just specifically to research oftentimes. So they're a good entry, but back to you, Lindsay. Well, I think that's a great segue because that's really the next topic is, you know, we can know about these market access teams. We can know about these people that exist. Um, and other than wondering how we get those jobs where your KPI is to fail half the time, uh, how do we actually get in contact with these people, right? I think that's that's a really big thing. And um, Medzi, I think you had mentioned a specific type of conference. And then Joanna, I'd really like to hear from you specifically as well on, um, you know, how do you get in front of these people? So the, what Pharma has been doing, at least I was involved in an alliance called the Pistoia Alliance, which is a pre-competitive, um, it's named after a small Italian city, after a bunch of pharma companies got together because they were really annoyed with the vendors and how vendors were treating them. So they created an alliance, which is a pre-competitive research IT alliance, but there's others around that. And they have meetings and relative often, and they do competitions and they do these open innovation days, um, to bring in innovation because they they know that they don't have the flexibility. So much like these distributed innovators, these um, pre-competitive opportunities are, are a good way to, to meet and you get to meet relatively senior people um, that can provide you access. Um, I'll add to that. So if you go to the major academic congresses where we're presenting our data, our entire leadership team will be there. <laughs> go to one of our, you know, at Johnson and Johnson, for example, in oncology, if you're in the oncology space, one of the largest congresses of the year is ASH, the American Society of Hematology. Even though it's an American society, it's a, it draws a global audience, you know, 25,000 people attend usually each year. Johnson and Johnson presents a lot of big data there. We showcase, you know, we have we oftentimes our data will get selected as like an oral presentation or even a, you know like a major session at the Congress. So if you like, for example, if you're trying to pitch to either our either market access or the medical clinical team, go to go to one of our presentations. Like we will be lining the front row, <laughs> and then after the presentation is over, just come right up to us and say like, hey. You know, my name is so and so. Give us your business card. You know, give us your to your elevator pitch or whatever. We're we're you know our entire team is usually there whenever we're at like a major major congress where we're presenting a lot of data. So it's a good opportunity to come and meet us. No, I think that's a phenomenal tip. And it also shows it also shows us that like you're in the space. You know that you're legitimate and in the space because if you're truly legitimate in the oncology space, you would be at Ash. You know what I mean? So it, it shows, and, and it's inexpensive, you know, it's, it's not a cheap Congress to attend. So it shows us that like, you have some sort of backing, some sort of funding that you're like operating in sort of a legitimate oncology space. And it just gives us that ultimate credibility when we meet you that like, you know, you're there, you're involved, you're part of the academic community, um, you know, and what we are more likely to listen to what you have to say than if we like met you on the street or something like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's a really great point too, and actually segues well into kind of our last wrap up here is, you know, setting appropriate expectations on working with pharma and specifically from a big pharma perspective, you know, having to your point, the legitimacy, the backing, like there are going to be some probably foundational things, right, that are going to be required. Um, it's 
unlikely I'm going to, to venture to guess here that you're going to pick up a, you know, a, a good idea off the street and give it enough merit to, to run with it, right? Um, well, we do. I, I'll, I'll say that we, we do, but there's a different mechanism for that kind of engagement. So if you are, if that's where you're at, which is totally great, and we do like to fund small, um, you know, young um, biotech companies, but we do that through J Labs. Um, that's our biotech incubator. The, um, that, that is a, a place where we provide various different sizes of grants and we put out these art, these requests for proposals. We call them quick fire challenges where we'll say, hey, you know, send us your best ideas. We're interested in funding, you know, this particular topic. We're usually very specific. Um, and if you have, if you're developing technology in the space, we have, you know, one grant for 100,000, one grant for 250, you know, 250,000. They vary. Sometimes they're more than that. Sometimes they're less than that, you know, and you can throw your hat in the ring. So that's like, there is an opportunity. You know, we don't want to exclude people who, um, are innovating and are in those very early stages and of just trying to get their company off the ground. We want to encourage that. So there is a mechanism for that, but you kind of have to know the time and the place that fits where you're at. You know, if you want to meet with the senior leadership of an established franchise within the company that's running, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions of dollars of clinical trials, and you want to integrate your technology into that, you're going to have to have a certain level of legitimacy. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the other part of it too, um, and I think Rahul, you had mentioned this, was not to necessarily underestimate the challenge of, of working in terms of integration and uh, Medzi and Balan, I'd like to hear from you on this more of the technical software side as well, right? Of just the challenges of working through all of the, the structural hoops and silos that can be present, especially the bigger you go in pharma. Yes. So uh, one interesting thing uh, um, I would like to to join to Rahul's and uh, Madzi's points is the is the user experience. So when when we are designing a user experience uh, in the pharma world, uh, on one side, uh, if we design for the end patients, uh, for the end clients, then uh, then uh, then we can uh, bring the best practices from the. Uh, latest consumer applications because uh, that users, especially uh, the, the the younger and more uh, tech savvy generations, uh, are really adapted to the uh, uh, latest trends. So this this kind of consumerization uh, can be seen in the in the patient facing or or, or end user facing uh, applications. But uh, one really interesting thing is uh, when we are designing a new solution for the experts, for the scientists, uh, it's better to check first their everyday habits, uh, how they, they approach the problems, how they deal with the different workflows, because um, most likely it's, uh, it's not the, the, the mainstream consumer user experience, what is needed for them. But, uh, but it's a really special, uh, really uh, focused uh, uh, solution. So, so uh, first we have to see who is the end user uh, for our hashtag solution within the pharma. And after that, we have to tailor uh, the, the design, the experience to that. 
and uh, and the technology aspects are just coming after that. Yeah, yeah, and thank you. That's actually a really good uh, kind of wrap up. And actually, I'm going to ask each of our other panelists just to provide kind of a final thought or any last words um, before we move into our networking session. Medzi, we'll start with you. Um, last words always sounds a bit ominous. Um, it's, I think, I talked about this as a vendor. Um, there, there are a lot of software vendors with a lot of different challenges. One thing I've found, which is, is something to keep in consideration, is that there are a lot of uh, IT departments are being outsourced. And which means that pharma is, in general, shedding a lot of its highly skilled expertise um, to switch them off into um, outsourced consultants. And the quality there of the consultants that they hire is really fluctuating, and it's really luck who gets assigned to your project oftentimes. So if you're thinking about approaching pharma, especially in early stages with technology um, in, in terms of a software or, or that kind of approach that requires software integration, then I would strongly suggest to, to think about that ahead of time because you have no idea what how complex it may get. So the simpler your solution is, the easier it's rollout, the better. Thank you, and we have uh, two minutes. So one minute for you, Rahul, and one for Joanna. Okay, sure. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think, you know, just uh, reiterating, try to get some data as quickly as possible uh, when you're at the earliest stages. Um, try to figure out what that wedge is um, to validate your MVP uh, as quickly as possible. And, you know, encourage folks to, to uh, try to partner with innovative high growth biotechs while contemporaneously pursuing uh, a big pharma partner, but just be ruthless about what you focus on. Is it my turn? Um, okay, I, I wanna say that we do want to partner with you. Um, pharma needs um, to be in, in relationship with uh, smaller companies. We need your creativity, spontaneity, innovation. We recognize this. Um, no, know where your technology fits in, know where you are in your development and, and, and target the um, segments of the pharma business that are most appropriate for integrating your technology based on where your company is at. And I just wanted to um, let folks know that if they're not familiar with our J, with J Labs, which is our innovation segment of the business, our incubator, um, visit our website. It's jlabs.jnjinnovation.com, and that's spelled J, the letter J, the letter N, the letter J, innovation.com. Um, and you can follow the quick fire. We have 12 quick fire challenges that we're going to be rolling out in the next quarter. So keep an eye out for those. Um, if, they, if your technology falls into those um, uh, RFPs that we're going to be putting out, do submit your, your proposals. And then if you're further along in further along in your development, then do start targeting some of those um, internal um, individuals who can help to advocate for bringing your um, technology and integrating it into the more traditional forms of clinical development. Awesome, thank you so much, guys. This is a phenomenal panel. I think the key takeaway is don't be scared, go for it. There's lots of opportunity and Big Pharma does wanna work with innovative companies. So let's continue this conversation in the Slack channel for the next three minutes, and then we'll kick off the Health Tech Startup Award session. Uh, the Health Tech Networking Slack link is in the chat. 
All right, we are going to uh, take a break, stay online, and we'll be back shortly. <laughs> 